Today we continue our series uh, called Time Hop. And if you weren't here with us last week and you're not familiar with that term, Time Hop is an app that you put on a smartphone that collects all the pictures or posts that you've placed on social media, whether it's been Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And then each day you go to your phone and there's a reminder that you can look at Time Hop and you can see what happened one, two, three, four, and sometimes five years ago. It's a great resource because it's timeless truths that you have forgotten about, that brings them back to today. And sometimes you look at a a photo, sometimes you look at a a post, and you think, I forgot about that. And then sometimes if you have children, you've seen how much they've grown, you've seen how much you've aged, you can see all kinds of, of fun things, and also things that hit you that day that maybe was a turning point in your life that you took enough time to post it because it spoke to you. And so as we plow through the book of Malachi, we are looking at a book that's over 2,000 years old, taking timeless truths that God the Father wrote to his kids, bringing them forward, this time capsule, and saying, this is what it means today. It's it's been a a great study, and I think it will continue to be a great study because there are some truths that we need to revisit that are applicable even to today. So throughout the week, I've just been grabbing some of the, the posts that I, I, I have. And I'm going to share a few that, that came across my smartphone this week. Here's one here that popped up on, on IHOP. It's a picture of Hannah playing tennis. She played for a Fairfield High School. She was playing doubles. They won that night. Now, that's high school. Fast forward, she graduates next weekend. Hannah was able to do college in three years. It's hard to believe it's been three years since that photo there, I remember that night. That was a great evening. It was good to look back and remember what, as parents, what we felt that night. Here's something I, I placed on Twitter and Facebook. If you don't invest very much, then defeat doesn't hurt very much. And winning is not very exciting. The importance of getting buy-in. And then I put on Facebook four years ago, God is about to do something big here at Grace Community this morning. I can feel it. That was prior to an Easter morning. And then another one that came up uh, this week. I'll show you the next photo that popped up. Uh, God speaks all the time, I put uh, on, on Instagram. But often we have too much noise in our lives to hear him. My soul is refreshed in a place like this. Grabbed one of our ATVs, went to Turkey Creek. And I was reminded of how God spoke to me in that moment. I took an hour alone with God and just sat along the Turkey Creek and just listened. And he spoke clearly to me. Another one that popped up was uh, four years ago, uh, Josh played college baseball at Grace College. We were down watching him play and, and uh, forgot a lot of those memories. We followed him to Florida in spring break when he played, and we'd go down and sit in our blankets and our sleeping bags and watch uh, spring baseball in Indiana. But I had forgotten about that and took time just to thank God for that season of life. The next one that came up was a, um, a video that appeared in... And it, uh, it was, in fact, it was this morning, and it came up, and it, it hit me in a special way. A very sweet lady of ours that has went to be with the Lord. It was a special time in their life, and I'll show you a video that appeared on Time Hop this morning. Take a look at this. This is an exciting day for Dream Ministries. This is watching Connie Waters' dream come true. We're excited behind us. The foundation is being dug for the home. We're excited. It's a great day for Grace Community Church, too. But blessings to you, Connie. Blessings to to the ladies who you get to serve over the next couple years, many years, I should say. Blessings to Dream Ministries. It's an exciting day here in this property for Dream Ministries. I couldn't help but think how Connie's rejoicing in heaven right now. And uh, her vision 
came true into fruition, and she ministered bravely and valiantly and made a big difference uh, for the kingdom and still is. Her legacy still lives on. And, and so I just got this snapshot. I remember standing there. They were digging. Now fast forward, God called her home, and she's, there's no doubt she's dancing in heaven right now, and she's running around in heaven. Today we look at a truth that God wants to remind us of. It, it's a good one. It's that, that, that he's a great God, and he deserves our very best, and that we should be honoring him. And so today, it's, it's the Heavenly Father writing to his children. It's a father writing to his kids. And he wants to remind us, as he wanted to remind this ancient group over 2,000 years ago, that he's worthy of our best. He deserves our best. And so in light of that, we should honor him. We should lift him up. When we're in his presence, we should act differently. We should live differently because he's a holy God. Have you ever been in the presence of someone really great? Maybe it's someone in your field of study. Maybe it's, maybe it's where you work at. Maybe it's the owner. Maybe it's a sport, you would say a sports figure that you aspire to. But have you ever been in the presence of someone great? And there's, there's this, this, this way that you function and live differently in their presence than you would in the presence of someone that you wouldn't consider great. And so God is calling us that as children, that we should honor him because he's great. He is the great God, the, the only God that deserves this kind of honor. I can recall a time when I was in the presence of, I would say, greatness. Um, there were a group of us that were invited to go tour the White House in Washington, D.C. And so prior to going, we had to do, they had to do some background check on us. We gave them our social security number. They did a background check on us to make sure that we were okay to go there and we had to fill out a ton of paperwork, and I hate filling out surveys. I hate filling out paperwork, but I plowed through it anyhow. And so as I'm giving this information, I made the list, and so did many of other ones that were with us. We could go to the White House. We were in Washington, D.C. for some meetings, and so we decided we would take a tour of the White House. Now, that was a pretty significant moment in my day because from the White House, our president that God oversees and is in complete control, leads our country. And so that was a big deal for me. So we, we walked in as a group, and there was this security booth that you went through, and they go through this list to see if your name's on the list. And, you know, and even at that point, I was thinking, I hope they didn't mess it up, that i got to stand outside. But I went up, and there it was. And they had me down as C. James Brown Jr. Come on in. It's like, I get to go into this house of greatness. So we all kind of walked in and ushered in, and we had this escort. And all around us were these security guards watching us, keeping an eye on us, because we're walking into the president's house, the White House. And so as we walked in, we go in, and this escort is leading us. And, you know, we're, we're chattering. In fact, I was. I, was like, oh, I remember seeing that on TV when the president did that. And I'm chattering, and he's like... And I realized that I wasn't allowed to talk like I did outside. It was very hard for me. I'm just being quite honest. I was seeing stuff I'd never seen before. Like, I'm in the White House, for crying out loud. I want to, do you see that? So from time to time, they would just go, shh. It's like, okay, okay. Like, we're in the presence of greatness. Be quiet. But I'm walking through this place, and we're going through rooms. Saw his oval desk, saw where he does his press conferences. And if you've never been in the White House, it's pretty amazing. I'm just, just being quite frank. It is. The decor, the, the chairs, and even the wallpaper. I was looking at this wallpaper. It was like it was textured. It was like that thick. and It, was, it, it had a green felt, and I wanted so badly to touch it. Just, just, 
So I could tell Anne all about. She loves the court. And so I, I found myself walking over. I was looking at her. You know, the, the escort was leading us, guiding us. And they were talking. I did one of these numbers. And she caught me. I'm serious. She said, you, you. We told you not to touch anything. Okay, okay, okay. Place of greatness. Place of greatness. I'll just be honest. It was a very difficult journey for me because... I just, I'm a kinesthetic learner. I'm like, touch, how's that work? How's that fit? I'm like the little kid in the candy shop that like, how's dad? And I was the kid, mom would take me to the grocery store and I'm grabbing everything. Just, you know, some things never change, by the way. I'm still kind of like that, just grabbing everything. So we finally walked through and you had to be quiet because this is the White House and we're in the presence of greatness. And, and by the way, it was a good journey. I learned a lot and I do respect the role and position that God has given leaders in our country. So I, I left the White House and came outside, and I was just <laughs> after I got outside of that. God is telling us this today. He's writing this letter as a father to his children, and he's about to tell us that I am great. I am so great that when you're in my presence, you should honor me. You should live differently. You should respect me. There should be moments where we're in the presence of the living God. Yet somewhere along this journey, the separation between God and us has closed. This gap that should be like this because he's a holy God has separated. And somehow we believe that we're better than what we really are. And God is less than he really is. And so that's his father looking at his kids. And the first paragraph of the letter was, I love you, 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 I love you. The second chapter of this letter, as any father would write to his kids, is, I love you, but let me tell you something. Here's an area in your life that you need to rethink. Grab your Bibles, and we're going to take a look at from this father to his children. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. And if you're here today and you're supposed to have a hard copy in your hand and you're a dude, raise your hand right now. I'm helping you out. But turn to Malachi chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 6 through 9. Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. Last book of the Old Testament. Stand with me and we'll read it together. Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Malachi 1, verses 6 to 9. Let's read this out loud together. Ready? Read. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. If it is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or deceased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? You may have a seat. Right away we see this Father, Heavenly Father, speaking through Malachi, and God is saying, I want you to tell this to my children. I want you to tell this to the people of God. It's a, it's a dad having a conversation with his kids. That's what this letter is. It's dad saying, I love you, intro. Now, do you realize who I am? 
Do you realize that, that maybe you've forgotten who I am? And so I would say this, we have forgotten who God is. And God is reminding us today that he is here and we are here. It's a perfect picture, this, this passage in this letter. It's a perfect picture of a tender and tough father who is unwilling to let his children not live up to their redeemed potential. He knows what they're capable of, and he wants them not to waste their lives falling short of this. It's, it's me as a father, you as a dad, sitting with your child and with your children and saying, I love you. I love you so much. And I've been watching your life, and I can see that, that here's the area in your life that I know you can do better in. It's tenderly putting your arm around them and reminding them, you were made for more than this. It's the father that, that gently loves his, his, his son or daughter and speaking truth into their life and reminding them, I'm your daddy. And I love you too much to let you live your life this way. And if you go on living your life this way, there are consequences for this. It's the heavenly father looking at his children and saying, there was a time when you knew who I was, but I'm afraid You've drifted far from my holiness and who I am. It's this loving dad reminding his children, I love you too much to let you live your life this way. And so he says this in verse 6. Look what he says. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. What does the word honor mean? Like, how would you define the word honor? Honor is, to honor someone is to consider them weighty or heavy. It's how we say, they're the heavyweights in their division. They're the heavyweights in their field of study. They're the heavyweights in our world. They carry a lot of weight. It's as if they, they weigh more, they're worth more because of what they've done, because of who they are, because they've established something in their field. And we say, they're the heavyweights. And honor is saying, you're a heavyweight. You are worthy of being lifted up and exalted to, to carry in high esteem. And so he's saying, you're breaking my heart by the way you dishonor me. Please, this twisted relationship and this view of me that you have, please turn from it. I'm due honor and respect, not only as your father, but as your master. And then he refers to himself seven times in this paragraph, this letter. He opens the intro, says, I love you. I love you this much. And then this next paragraph of this letter, look with me. Look how many times he refers to himself as Lord Almighty. Look, look, look with me. Look at, at verse 6. At the end of verse 6, he says, if I am a master, where is respect due me? Says the Lord what? What's the word? Almighty. Look when he says it again. Look, look down at verse 8 at the end. He says, would he accept you? Says what? Lord Almighty. Look at the end of verse 9. Lord Almighty. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, Lord Almighty. Look at the end of verse 11. Says the Lord Almighty. Verse 12. He says, or 13, what a burden. You sniff at it contemptuously, says Lord Almighty. Look at the end of verse 14. Says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared amongst the nations. For some reason, it's like us saying to our kids that we're writing a letter. Remember, I'm your dad. Remember, I'm your dad. 
Remember, this is dad. Remember, this is dad. Remember, this is your father. Remember, this is your father. Please remember that my position in your life is above yours. And I want you to remember that this is your father speaking. But God himself says, remember the Lord Almighty. Seven times in this one paragraph, he drives it home. Why? He wants him to know that he is due respect and honor. Did you realize that the word Lord and understanding where that came from, this name was so revered during this time. In fact, it's the Hebrew word that we would say Yahweh. In fact, when I took, I, I was a Greek and Hebrew minor in college, and I took in, in, in seminary, we took Greek and Hebrew. But when we would read the Old Testament in Hebrew, when we saw the name Yahweh, we weren't allowed to even speak that name. So when we read it, we said Adonai instead of Yahweh. It was such a sacred, holy name that even during this time, the name was so revered and so honored that when, when priests would see it, they wouldn't even speak the name Yahweh. They would say Adonai. And to be quite frank, it was so holy and so revered that it wasn't even allowed to be spoken by human lips and only one day a year would they ever say the name Yahweh. And it was spoken by a priest at the Day of Atonement. So they only heard this name spoken one time and a priest would speak it on the Day of Atonement. They would never say Yahweh because it was so holy, so set apart, so righteous that this Hebrew word was never spoken that we know as Lord. In fact... When scribes would write this name Yahweh, they had to take a bath before they actually wrote the name Yahweh on a piece of parchment of paper. And after they actually wrote the name Yahweh, they would throw the pen away so that it would never be used again. It was that holy. And God says, remember, I'm the Lord, Yahweh. I'm due respect and honor. And somewhere along this journey, you've forgotten who I am. I'm your father coming to you and saying, please, don't disrespect me and dishonor me any longer. Not only does he say the Lord, but he also says the word almighty. He puts Lord Yahweh with almighty. This Hebrew word means a great number of armies. It's the idea that we get the Lord of the angel armies. We've come a long way from that. In fact, let me show you what we've done in, 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 in language so that to help us understand how sacred this name is. The word Yahweh is spelled, this is a transliteration. We know this. We know the word Yahweh today like this. But during this time, they would not speak the word Yahweh because it was so holy. In fact, they said this word instead of Yahweh, Ad. Adonai. How many of you have ever heard that word, Adonai? And so when they would read the Bible in Malachi, they would see the word Yahweh, and they would read Adonai. In fact, when I was in, in, in Grace College and Seminary, Professor Abeg was Dr. Abeg. He worked on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and when we would read the Hebrew, we would actually say Adonai instead of Yahweh. And so to come up with the word that we have today in place of this, we've... The, the scholars of the day and the people of the day actually made up a word 
that we know today. And here's the word that we know. We're familiar with this word. And you'll hear it sung about. You'll hear us say it. And how many of you have ever heard the word Jehovah? Do you know where that word comes from? It's a man-made word, by the way. And here's here's what happened. The word Yahweh has what we know as consonants. And so they took the Y, the H, the W, and the H of this. And they took the vowels from the word Adonai, and they put them in that place. And so you look at that word, what does that word speak? Jehovah. And so we ended up with a Hebrew word that is Jehovah. And the reason we use the word Jehovah is so that we don't speak the word Yahweh. Now, we've come a long way from there. And God is looking at his children and saying, we need to get back here. I love you too much for you to disrespect me this way. I love you too much for you to dishonor me this way. You've forgotten who I am. So it reminds them that they have shifted so far. They've lost their awe and wonder of the Father. And you realize right after this is the 400 years of silence. And so his last word to them, please get back. Please get back there. Please. And if you don't, there's consequences for this. Every time I read this passage, I find myself going to Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. I'm reminded, like the last book of the New Testament, as a reminder to us. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. I'm reminded of what John said. He recorded these words as he was on the island of Patmos, and these were Jesus' words. Look at Revelation chapter 3. Look at the last book of the New Testament. John says this, and And Jesus speaks, and he writes in John chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15. He says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your what? What's the word? Deeds, that you are neither cold nor what? I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot... I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And so John says on the island of Patmos, listen, church, listen, New Testament church today, you're either hot or cold, no lukewarm. If you're lukewarm, God is sick over you. So some might ask, how can cold be a good thing? I understand being hot, but how can you be a cold Christian? How's that a good thing? Well, let me give you a little explanation here. In this reference here, cold water would be the underground currents and streams and tunnels that were underground that would flow from city and lay out a seed. And when they would get there, there would be this underground system that was fresh water coming in and it was cold. And so when they would grab it, it was a breath of fresh air during a hot day and it would quench their thirst. Who doesn't like cold water? So he's saying, I want you to be cold, refreshing, Everyone needs cold water or hot. Hot water during this time, they didn't have water heaters like we have today. And the way that they made their water hot, they would put their tubs on the top of their flat buildings. And so if you walk through Jerusalem during this time, on the tops of all the homes and dwellings were tubs. 
And they would put water that had come down through the underground currents. They would grab it. It was cold. They would stick it in the tubs. And all day long, this water would bake in the sun and get hot and hotter and hotter. And you know when people took their baths? They took them in the evening because the water was hot. And hot was soothing to them. Do you know when David saw Bathsheba? Do you know why David fell? Because at the top of this dwelling, Bathsheba was taking a bath at nighttime in a hot tub, and he saw her. And so Jesus is saying to us today the same thing he said back in Malachi. You're either cold nor hot, or hot, but I don't want you lukewarm. If you are, I will spit you out. So the father is saying to his children here, You've come a long way away from where I need you to be. He is saying, you don't know who I am. I am the Lord of the angel armies. Isaiah does a better job of trying to explain this. Just hold your finger in Malachi and turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. It's important that we get this down. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. And look at verse 1. He tried to describe who God is. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, Isaiah 6, 1. And the train of his robe filled the what? Temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another. What did they say to Yahweh? What did they say to him? Holy Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Isaiah gives this picture. I don't know if you've been to weddings where the train of the bride is pretty long. I've seen some pretty long. In fact, some queens of England have had pretty long ones, 15 to 20 feet. But it says here that the train of the, of, 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 of the God that we serve, it fills the temple. Imagine that. that we're having a ceremony, and this, we stand up. Here comes the bride, and in walks this this, this bride, and you're standing there waiting for this train. The train is so long that it goes the whole way through every aisle, comes across, goes the whole way. It says that the temple is filled with the train of his robe. It's so long, it's so big, and the length of it shows his greatness. And the reason it's long, because no one could ever have that respect. And it said it's so, the temple is so filled that people are sitting literally with the train covering up to their chins. And then it says, all day long, they say, holy, holy, holy. Do you realize in the Hebrew that this word holy only referred to here? It's only one word in the Hebrew, but it's translated with this Hebrew idiom that you have to repeat it three times. And it's a reference to God, and it's only referred to as Lord Almighty. And it's the only time it's referred to in Scripture where they say this Hebrew word holy. It says, Hebrew idiom says, when you see this Hebrew word, you better say it three times. Instead of saying our God is holy, it's holy, 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 almighty. Boy, have we lost our all of God. God the Father is looking at his kids and saying, please, I love you too much to let you disrespect me this way and dishonor me. I personally believe that this is so relevant in the world that we live in today where 
honoring parents is a fleeting thing. Well, I'm not going to honor you unless you do this for me. I'm not honoring you. you I know, I already know. I know, I know. How many times do you have kids? I know, I know, Dad, I know. I know, Mom. Instead of saying, I love you too much to disrespect you, you're probably right, and you're seasoned more than I am, and you're experienced more than I am, and I'm going to listen to you. That's what God is saying today to his children. You know, we share a lot of the attributes of God. Now, we're not sovereign, we're not omniscient, we're not omnipotent, but we carry a lot of his personality traits. But let me tell you something, we don't share holiness. There's only one God that's completely holy, and it's the God we serve. It's not Buddha, it's God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he is so holy that it separates us from him. We can't get close to him. But for some reason, we keep closing the gap and think we're more than what we really are. And God is saying, listen, you will never get to me. I am holy, holy, holy. I like how he says this. Look at verse 6 again. He says, A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me? He tells him this. He says, A father displays his affection and the master reveals his authority over them. In other words, I love you, but I'm also giving you something that you need to do. So respect that. He is both love and authority. And we should see God that way. He gives the final word in our lives. But as Americans, we struggle with that. We struggle with the chain of commands of leadership. If we can't lead, we find all the reason to critique the leader. And he's saying, listen, I am the ultimate leader. And I should be feared and respected and honored and followed with your life, with your dollars, with your deeds, and all of your days. This passage breaks my heart. And here's why it would break my heart. If we would ever be the people that he would look at, because he's speaking this to a priest, and he's telling them, make sure your people no longer do this. The typical response from them, it's pretty typical. Look what they say. The father comes and the child responds. So he says, I want you to honor me. If you priests, if it is you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Then he says, I'll tell you how, by offering defiled food on the altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? It's like the child looking at his mom or dad and saying, listen, this is what I noticed. Yeah, how, dad? That's not true. You didn't see everything. You didn't know this. What right do we ever have to go to Father God and say, I don't agree with you. I don't think you have all the facts. Seriously, think about the audacity to do something like that. Have you ever had the Holy Spirit just speak to you, call you out? Have you ever been driving or walking? Have you ever been reading a a passage of Scripture and you, you had a season of sin or you just had a moment of sin and you're reading this passage and the Spirit is just convicting you and all of a sudden you're feeling nauseous have you ever had and have you ever have you ever tried to push it away like oh and that's not me you don't know me now here, here's the thing we actually think god doesn't keep records of everything he knows every have you ever sat in a message and you're like come on quit talking to me 
talk to somebody. In fact, talk to her, would you? That's the Spirit speaking. And so as God, this Father, speaks to his kids, he's saying, you give lame sacrifices. However we defiled, you bring sick and disease sacrifices to me. But how, how, God, how, 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 God, how? You don't know us. Oh, yeah, I do. I watched you every second of your life. Regardless of what you believe to be true, let me ask you a question. Are you honoring or dishonoring God with your life right now? You see, we need to give him priority over everything, not just some things. Defiled food, he said. Polluted food on the altar. Giving him our leftovers instead of our first fruits. It's like going to our garage sale pile and saying, I don't need this anymore. I bet someone will buy it, though. And we take that and we give that to God. We give him our leftover pal. It's the stuff that doesn't work. But, you know, every man's junk is another man's what? And we think every man's junk is God's treasure. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. We're supposed to give him the best. It's going and giving our best effort. It's going and giving our best attitude. It's going and giving our best offering. It's going and giving him the absolute best that we can give and not the garage sale stuff left over. That's what he's saying to his kids. You've been giving me garage sale stuff. And not only that, when you bring your sacrifices in, you just, you're bringing in possums and roadkill. That's what you're bringing in. I want your best. I want the sheep, the lambs, the horses that are your favorites, the ones that you've groomed, the ones that you've ridden. The ones that you, 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 you've spent time and you talk nicely to. I want them. I want you to give the best and not the one that's dying and needs to be shot. So how do we do that today? Let's fast forward to today. How are you bringing animals limping to the altar? Deceased animals. And how you do it? We had an offering plate that was just passed. What did you give him? Did you give him your leftovers? Well, I've been to B-dubs three times this week, and, I, you know, I was hanging out with people. This is what I got left. He says, don't you dare give me your leftovers. Give me the first fruits. First fruits, not your leftovers, and expect me to bless that. He's looking at them and saying the same thing that he's saying to us. 10% is the minimum. That's the tithe. Above that is an offering. How many of you are cheating God with your giving? That's what he's saying. How many right now are saying, no, (laughs) praise God, I'm giving him my best. Not just 10%. I'm giving him an offering too. Why? Because he's worthy of it. Worthy of it. Bottom line is this. We think that God doesn't somehow care about our giving or our serving. Or by the way, we think he's not aware of it, that he can't read the books at Grace Community Church. Let me tell you something in case you've forgotten. He's a perfect bookkeeper. And some of you are robbing him with your leftover giving. So God speaks on in this letter. Look at verse 10. He says, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors 
so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great amongst the nations, from where the sun rises to the where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be what? Great among the nations, says the Lord what? Almighty. Look at verse 12. But you do what to it? What's the word? Profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food contemptible. And you say, what a burden. Or, oh, brother, you're coming after us again with that one, Pastor Jim? And you sniff at it contemptuously. You nod your head and shake your head and say, all right, whatever, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or deceased animals and offer them as sacrifices. Then he said, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Verse 14, cursed is the what? Cheat. Stop. God calls us a cheat if we don't give him what he deserves. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it. Oh, yeah, Lord, I'll do this this year. I'll commit to that, God. I signed up for that. I'm not going to walk away from it. I'm good on my word. But then sacrifice is a blemish animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Some of you are cheating God. And he is saying, this is wrong. In fact, he says it twice. This is wrong. This is wrong. And then he says in another version, this is evil. This is evil. It's the father looking at his kids saying, no more. Son, daughter, listen to me. This is wrong. This is evil. You will not do this any longer. I deserve better from you. This is wrong. He's saying, I don't need some lifeless religious relationship from you. I'd rather shut it down than have you continue this phony religious lifestyle. And what he's saying is this, Grace Community Church, I'll shut you down. I'll shut you down. I'll shut the doors down. If it's just lifeless, phony, religious people showing up and not worshiping me and not living out their faith the way I intend, I'll shut it down. I don't need that kind of lifeless worship. And that would break my heart. It's the father looking at the child and saying, I love you too much to let you continue to do this. It's the priest saying, stop playing church. Because God's name is great. They wouldn't even speak it in the early days. Now we use it in vain when we hit our finger with a, with a hammer. We curse his name. And there was a time they wouldn't even speak his name. It was so holy. And Isaiah said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Instead of counting it a privilege to worship him, he's saying, you say, it's a burden. Look at verse 13. And you say, oh, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously. He doesn't want half-hearted followers. You see, I want to give some clarity to something I think is really skewed in the minds of many people we separate what we would call the secular from the sacred. 
And we say things like this. We say, well, that's my secular job. You know, I'm called to be a teacher. That's my secular job. I'm a welder. I'm a policeman. That's my secular job. I'm an artist. That's my secular job. I'm a homemaker. That's my secular job. I, 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 I'm a carpenter. I'm a, that's my secular job. And so that somehow that there's a difference between the calling on your life and the secular. And so we'll say things. Well, I hope God calls me to ministry. And I hope that someday I'm in full-time ministry too. I've had this conversation. But listen to me. There is not a difference when there's a call on your life. You can be a full-time minister that's a welder. And the second you begin to separate secular from sacred, you're believing a lie from the enemy. If he's called you as a welder, you can be an incredible welder, use that gift, and you can lead those people to Jesus. There's not a difference. It's not special if you're, if you're somehow that God calls you to be a pastor. I'm no different than a welder. My calling is to the local church. And you know what I do? I use this calling to do what I'm supposed to do. I tell people about Jesus. You use your calling to be a nurse, a doctor, a welder, a policeman to tell people about Jesus. There's no difference. I'm not better than you. You're not worse than me. We're even. So let's forget about sacred everything or secular. Everything is sacred when you're a Christ follower. In fact, let me bring some clarity here. Colossians 3.23. Paul said this. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. You know what that means? That means when you punch into whatever calling that's on your life, whether you're a president or a senator or a representative or a mayor or a welder, whatever you do, a student, whatever you do, when you punch in, give your best. Not for him, but for God. That means you're not a complainer in the workplace. That means you're not talking disparagingly about your leaders. That means you're not gossiping. That means you don't shut down and say, well, I'm not going to work, but I'm not getting that. That means you work so hard that your boss can't make it without you. That's how you work for the Lord. Because listen, when you punch in, you're punching in for Jesus. Make your boss wealthy. That's what Christ followers should do. Okay, three amens, but that's the truth. <laughs> I understand how difficult it is. I'm not like, well, Jim, you don't. Yes, I do understand. But my calling is to please God. And when I please God, someone looks at my life in this sacred place called the assembly line, and they say, man, that boy stands out. He gives everything. There's something different about him. And that brings a smile on our Lord Almighty's face. So listen, we got some work to do in the workplace. Make yourself irreplaceable. Some of you aren't doing that. You've made yourself replaceable. They can't wait to get rid of you. And that brings shame and disgust to your God, the Father's name. So he looks at his children and says, it's half-hearted followers that... I detest. In fact, you're a cheat. You call yourself a Christ follower and you're doing that? I love what 2 Chronicles 16.9 says. It's this beautiful picture. It says, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth. 
in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. It's this picture right now. God's looking. He's looking down at Grace Community Church. There's one. There's one. That whole group. That would bless my heart. He looks down and says, that group understands. There's one. And, and it says he's, he's searching the whole earth right now. He's searching. He's looking for someone whose heart is fully focused on him. And you know what he does when he sees you? It says he strengthens you. And you say, oh, this is such a burden. It's so weary, giving my best every day. Oh, man. Yeah, even this week, I, I, for me, it's been, I can't wait to get to 1.30 on Sunday. By the time 1.30 comes around, I want to know at 1.30, I give everything. I want to know at 1.30 on Sunday that I am tired, that I am worn out for Jesus. And so should you be. You must have a finish line where you find a day of rest, but at the end of that, you're not whining. I worked too hard. How come they had me doing that? Oh, I had all this overtime. Oh, they, so what? In doing it, do it for the Lord. And there should be, you should be worn out serving the Lord. But he's saying, cursed is the cheat. Eugene Peterson says it this way in this verse. Verse 14, he says, A curse on the person who makes a big show of doing something great for me, an expensive sacrifice, say, and then at the last minute brings in something puny and worthless. I'm a great king, God of the angel armies. Honored far and wide, and I'll not put up with it. So he closes out this book or this this part of the letter by saying this in verse 14. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemish animal for the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. You want a blessing or a curse from your father? Let me personalize this in closing. This week I had a privilege, and it really was a privilege. My daughter is a senior. She's graduating from college, from Grace College. And this week I was asked to speak at Grace College, my alma mater. It was great to go back. They invested in me. It's a chance for me to give back. I always try to operate that way. Someone gives to me. I try with all my heart to give as much back as I can. So they asked me to speak. So I went down Wednesday and spoke at 10.30, and I went down Thursday and spoke at 10.30, and then they had their first ever midnight meeting at 12 o'clock Thursday night. By the way, college students were more awake at midnight than they were at 10.30 in the morning that day. I was just holding on, giving my best. By the way, they, they did that because they heard about these things called fight club midnight meetings. Imagine that. But anyhow, my daughter was there. It was so good. I mean, she joined us in the prayer time together with the, the chapel crew. And, and so she got to introduce me. And she came up and she said some things about her dad. And to be quite frank, I didn't know if I was going to be able to speak. Because <laughs> she said some nice things that it really, it moved me deeply. And as I was thinking about this passage, we have a God, the Father, that loves his kids. And when we say and we do things, he hears them and sees them. The same way I felt when my daughter spoke about me, our God feels about us. See, somewhere we've disconnected this relationship that God is a loving father that loves us. 
And somehow we, we don't realize that when we live for him the way a father desires of his kids, it brings great joy to daddy. My hope is this today, that as the spirit comes and speaks to you and compels you and advises you and convicts you, that you don't push it away, but you walk away and say, my God is worthy of honor and respect, and I will give him my very best. As a kid, we would sing a song, and it went like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I remember singing that in church growing up, and they would say, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. And for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, there was a point in time where we made that commitment. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back, no turning back. God, I pray today that you would renew our passion and our love for you. I pray, God, in an unusual way that there would just be this new fire in our hearts and this complacency and mediocrity that has crept in and, and this desire to walk away or just quit something that we've started. That, God, we would be finishers and we would revere your name. And when we sign the line that we would follow, that we would follow you no matter what comes our way. So, Lord, even as we sing this song, I pray there would be a renewed passion in our hearts to do that very thing. No turning back, no turning back, no turning back. In Jesus' name, amen.